This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. Today's show is an architecture special. We tour the revamped Slovak National Gallery and meet Camilo Restrepo to discuss tropical architecture. Plus, we visit an inflatable installation in London's financial district. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today in Slovakia, where the modernist Slovak National Gallery in Bratislava has just had its pre-opening test run. It's the biggest museum renovation project in the country's history and has taken 17 years and 80 million euros. Regular exhibitions won't begin until later in the year, but Monocle's Alexei Koryalov has been given access to the building, where he spoke to the architect behind its refurbishment. It's a very strange uh, and interesting cluster of buildings and spaces. We have army barracks from the middle of uh, 18th century. We have classicism, we have late modern 70s, made by very important Slovak architect Vladimir Dedeček. And we have this reconstruction. Architect Pavel Panak, more from him in a moment. By the late 1970s, Bratislava had become a city of wildly inventive architectural modernism. This degree of creative freedom was made possible by its remoteness from its communist overlords in Moscow and its relative political insignificance. And the late Vladimir Dedeček took full advantage of that. He was, uh, I would say, uh, the most interesting uh, architect of late modern architecture of very monumental architecture. But this doesn't mean that all Bratislavans liked what he did. His remake of the Slovak National Gallery on the bank of the River Danube proved especially controversial. Of course, he was an architect of very different language of architecture comparing to the existing embankment of Danube. And therefore, because of this unfamiliar language of architecture, it polarised the opinion of the public and also of architects very much, very much. Most of the criticism was reserved for the strikingly futuristic aluminium facade, or bridge, that connected the gallery's two Baroque-era side wings. Pavel took me up there. The bridge part is it's a unique exhibition space. We have three levels stepped up as a terrace, stepped terrace, with the daily light from north. It's an exceptional spatial concept in the European uh, exhibition architecture. What is new here is this wall was without those openings here. So that you couldn't you couldn't walk up to the windows before? There were no windows. It was closed. But because the building materials used in its construction were so poor, by the early 2000s the bridge was crumbling. And that's when Pavel was brought in. It couldn't be used because of... Just because of the materials. Uh, materials because, you know, it's a glazed roof there. It was, it was raining inside. It doesn't work for a gallery, of course. Yeah. Therefore, in the 2005, there was a competition. We won it uh, with my colleague Martin Cusi. He's a second architect. We are two, two architects of the, of the reconstruction and addition. There is just actually one new volume 
we added one new volume, and that was the depository, new depository. It was badly needed. And uh, the new volume is also a new big central hall, not the entry hall. We are in the entry hall now, but the new uh, central hall for exhibitions of large art pieces, for large installations, for large uh, events. And that's where we were. That, yeah, that was that was the, the big yeah. hall there. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as, as as an architect, as someone who has brought this place back to life, what are your feelings actually? I mean, I guess you feel pride. Uh, maybe you know, the pride is not the most important feeling. Most important is actually a relief. It's done. It took from the competition. It took 17 years. That means the, the feeling of joy it's, it's done was the most important. And actually, it has to endure the real testing. And the real testing actually is a couple of years of normal function. That's the time maybe I would say <laughs> we could be satisfied or, or not. For now, the gallery remains closed to the public. But soon this epitome of modernism will once again be there for all to visit and enjoy. For Monocle in Bratislava, I'm Alexei Korolev. Do you want the tactility of print and the speed of digital? Well, sign up for a Monocle subscription today and enjoy 10 issues plus four annual specials, as well as access to the Monocle Digital Editions. The Monocle Digital Editions offers improved access to the magazine on the go and at the touch of a button. It also includes our extensive archive of global reporting and a growing roster of travel guides and tips too. Head to monocle.com slash subscribe to sign up now. What do you picture when you hear the words tropical space? Lush foliage, verdant gardens, buildings set between swaying palm trees. It's a style of architecture that is often misrepresented and simplified, not taking into account the nuances that come with the climate. On Specific Ambiguity is an upcoming title from publishers Arkina. It's part manifesto, part monograph, authored by the Colombian architect Camilo Restrepo, co-founder of the design firm Agenda. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, caught up with Camilo to find out how to build with a tropical mindset and where we can find such mindsets across the globe. I think that the idea of tropical space, it's more embedded into universal culture, much more than what we think about. There are many architects from the history of architecture, especially since the late 19th century, and that have been completely touched by that idea of the tropic. There are many, many buildings around the world that are placed in Europe or in the southern countries where there are seasons that have been part of the culture for many, many years. And people don't know that their ideas come from this exchange of the tropic with the tropic from Britain, Europe, even Japan, with these ideas of the space. Of course, the first that come to my mind, located in Europe, in Holland, is the Sonsbeek Pavilion by Aldo van Eyck. It's a very small building, but when you go there, you see that the, that the building refuses to create an absolute interior. It's always creating relationships with the exterior. We can relate also to these ideas of huge canopies. 
uh, roofs that are very long, that are porous on their sides, but at the same time allow some places to be climatized when we talk about in the north. But it's also important to, to relate in the sense that we think that tropical space, it's interesting because of the background, right? That it's very exotic, that it's full of nature, that it's lush, that it's green, that it's full of orchids or flowers. But, and, and the beauty I think about the book and, and this idea of the tropical space, is that it's been a constant exchange between the north and the south, between the tropical belt and Europe, let's say, and in North America. The Neue Galerie by Mies van der Rohe in Berlin is exactly the same project he did for Bacardi in Cuba. It has this overhang that he very cleverly moved the same project from Santiago de Cuba, super tropical place, to Berlin, and then kept the overhang, arguing that he kept the overhang for compositional reasons. But the idea, of course, is that uh, this idea of the tropical fever, as is mentioned by Francisco Lierner, an Argentinian historian and theoretical, this tropical fever infected the whole world during the 20th century and created these masterpieces of architecture that are even located in Europe. The idea of tropical space is a way of thinking, a way of making buildings more public, more democratic, more sustainable, and more open to situations that perhaps many times architects cannot control, and that's the beauty of architecture. I wondered if you could talk a bit about building with the tropical mindset. I found it really interesting, this idea of building for climate, for weather, knowing that these things are uncertain and are changeable, and you just have to, I suppose, work with that and find ways of allowing those, those elements to pass through your building or take hold, I suppose. I think that building with the weather and the climate, it's something that was very into the core of architecture until, I would say, late 70s. For many reasons, one of them, this hard lobby performed by the US during the Cold War, introduced AC systems into many places that wasn't needed. There was this tradition about building with weather. Uh, even in London, for example, in the AA, there was this, the Center for Tropical Studies at the, at the Architectural Association until very late 70s, and a lot of production and exchange of information was produced at that moment. But of course, with the processes of decolonization in the 50s, 60s, from many perspectives, this was seen as a colonizing policy. So many places, either in Britain or in Africa or in Asia, or even in the Caribbean, this idea of exchanging information about architecture, dealing with weather and climate, was ruled out of the programs, the academic programs. And with that, I think a lot of knowledge was lost. Now we see the effect of that with climate change and uh, cultures that are completely dependent on air conditioner or climatization. While in many places, architecture can only be breathed in naturally by placing intelligently the way air goes through uh, the materiality, how it's open, how you create relationships with the exterior in a way that allows buildings to, to be more sustainable and of course more public. Today it's important, very important to understand that climate and weather, it's an element that has to be placed on the desk when we design, when we understand how a public building works. Because places, for example, in Colombia now, 
it's been raining for three years in some places in the Andes or look at now how rain it's making struggles now in California or drought seasons in other places. It's not only about what we see, how we feel, what we touch, but also how this element gives form and gives shape to architecture. In the book, you describe tropical architecture as ambivalent and imprecise, complex and contradictory. I wondered how you relate these words to one another and if you could discuss one of your projects from a gender that, that draws all these different facets in. We live in ambiguous times at the same time. Huh? I think it's uh, this contradiction, this oxymoron, this kind of being and not being at the same time. It's important for us not only to understand where we live and what we live today in the world, but also in our projects. And one of the projects that I would say help us explain this kind of contradiction and this ambiguity is a small social a community center. It's called Linares, also in Mexico City, in association with TO Architects and UDB from Colombia. We create a very long structure made of very, very thin and metallic structure that gives it a certain uh, lightness. But at the same time, by placing these elements so near one to the other, it creates a kind of a porous wall. If you look at it from a certain angle, it seems very closed. When you look at it from the front, it is absolutely open. So it's this repetition, this idea of system and exceptions that take place that allows this space to be closed but open at the same time, also by inserting these courtyards in between these elements of space that happen to be felt in a very dense and even heavy way because of its repetition of its amount of elements. But once you are there and you surround it, you walk around, which is also a characteristic of this idea of tropical architecture that it invites you to move, it appears to be an open space, very open, very generous, very public. And, and I think that's something that we try to make a lot of emphasis, how to make things public, how these elements allow these multiple readings, the construction of different relationships with being inside but also outside, being in between courtyards, but also how you do the fenestration or, or the enclosing of this skin of the body of architecture allows you to have very different relationships with the exterior, how nature comes in and you never know if you are completely inside or outside. This, this kind of ambiguity of making you doubt asking yourself questions as a visitor, but also as an architect of where you are and how this relates with the exterior and the interior, I think it's important. This continuous threshold, and I think this building in Mexico City also explains very good this idea of ambiguity, contradiction, not being fully precise of occupying a place. The other element that it's important is that it's buildings that make you question where is the door and that you want to enter, but you have to turn around. You see the interior, but the interior is also made out of exterior, a courtyard, uh, a small garden that it's only divided by a very thin layer of wall that can be the structural elements, but also can be a, a window that has no glass, but it makes you turn around. So these kind of contradictions of not knowing where the door is, but at the same time being covered by an overhang I think these are these contradictions that are very important for this ambiguous type of space. I like this idea of asking questions to the visitor that 
It makes you want to go in, that you can see what's inside. It's transparent even though it's not made out of glass. But it makes you wander a little bit around and find people and meet people. And then suddenly you find the door and a new world opens to your eyes, I think, and to your experience. And I think that's, that's what makes buildings public and more democratic. Usually space, it's very much confined into being either completely interior, which is very much the typical type of space that you will find in places with seasons, and spaces that are completely outside, which is very much spaces that happen to be in places that are more tropical, that doesn't have to be confined to the interior all year round. So what we're trying to do is to create a theoretical, historical approach to this type of idea of architecture. It's been somehow lost in time. That blurriness between the inside and, and the outside reminds me of one of your projects, the open chapel in Mexico called Our Shrine of Our Lord of Tula. Could you tell me a little bit more about that particular project? It is placed in a city south from Cuernavaca, more or less two hours south from Mexico City, in a fantastic landscape, absolutely tropical. And it's interesting because after the earthquake of 2017 that hit this small town called Jojutla, some entities and some organizations led by Carlos Edillo at that moment asked us to reconstruct public infrastructure instead of housing. If they didn't put an effort onto public buildings first, nobody will do it after that. So it was important to have places for people to meet and to gather. We thought that it was beautiful to combine the idea of an auditorium with a typical basilica type, cross-shaped church. But in the section, the ground begins to, to slope down, operating precisely as an auditorium, because we thought that it was a place where people could gather and solve their problems and find the way of being together, not only on their religious purposes, but also as a community. The second element that for us was very important was to have an echo of this beautiful typology that happened to be in Mexico since the 15th century, very early from the years of uh, colonization even, which is the open chapel that mediates between inside and outside, open on every side. So we thought that it was a typology already established in Mexico in tune with our idea of tropical space. And third, the contractor for the construction. We knew in advance that it was a contractor that had only built bridges, infrastructure. So we thought that it required a very, very simple shape and form, not only to be built, but also to be open on every side, to provide this possibility of the building to breathe naturally without any system for either climatization or ventilation, keeping the rates of energy very low or even non-existent only for lighting. So we found the way of creating this arch made out of concrete, like a bridge, but giving it a different purpose in, in the surroundings and in relationship with the context, presenting, let's say, our tribute to the arches that are on a side, a, one of these ruins from the 17th century, and then creating all this public space around to making it become a place for gathering for people to meet. Once you place a building into the world, 
things unexpected take place and tropical architecture is generous about it and wants to be appropriated by the people. So it is, it's a way of trying to move away from this super uh, simplistic idea that the architecture in the tropic is made with a lack of resources. It's the resources that we have available. So you cannot compare and say that it's small resources, big resources, huge resources is what it's available and that's the beauty of it. The architect Camilo Restrepo there in conversation with Maylee Evans. On Specific Ambiguity is published by Akina and is out soon. We'll be back in just a moment. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Next up, I'd like to reflect on the relationship between architecture and art. In the first phase of an architectural project, images of existing buildings, whose forms the architects think set useful visual benchmarks, will often make up part of presentations to stakeholders. The hope is that these architectural reference points will excite a client and show that the proposal is feasible. But the risk of turning to these works as precedents means that the final outcome can end up bearing the hallmarks of these structures that already exist. That begs the question, how can designers approach their work in a way that ensures it won't be influenced by other projects? Jacques Herzog, of Pritzker Prize-winning studio Herzog & Demuron, has a solution. Herzog explained that when he was a student in the 1970s, Postmodernism became fashionable, and design and architecture was very much inspired by its focus on eclectic decoration. It was a trend that he claims he wasn't particularly drawn to. This meant swimming against the stream and finding other elements for inspiration beyond the work of other designers. He looked to art. This is beneficial because art is based on not knowing. As an artist, you can get up in the morning and no one tells you what to do, whereas a designer, you're much more confined by programs. By not having clear rules like an artist, built environment professionals can find solutions for a design conceptually rather than prescriptively. It's an outlook that links nicely to our next item, which sees us stay in London to visit a piece of, well, for want of better description, bubble texture. Evanescent is an installation that mixes art and architecture from Sydney-based firm Atelier Sisu and has appeared in the British capital's business district. To learn more, we visited the Leadenhall building to meet the minds behind the project. What makes life beautiful is that it's fleeting, that is momentary, and that's something we wanted to convey with the piece as well. As we install it in different places and it moves on from country to country, continent to continent. My name is Renzo Barriga La Riviere. 
And I'm Zara Passfield, and we're from Sydney-based design studio Atelier Sisu, and we're the artists behind Evanescent. Here in the forecourt of the Leadenhall building, we've got three sort of larger-than-life bubble structures. They stand at about eight metres tall, and they're made out of an iridescent dichroic material. So what that means is that it splits the light into different wavelengths. So depending on where you're standing or the time of day, you're going to have a very different experience of the sculpture itself. Once it goes up, it does reflect the environment around it. So the environment actually becomes part of the piece and of the exhibition. So every single shine is unique wherever it goes. Tilia Sisu focuses on the intersection between art and architecture. Renzo's background is in fine arts and mine is in architectural design. This is our main form of exploration at this point in time. Besides being in London, Evanescent is visiting Singapore, um, China and New Zealand at the same time. London is its 17th city in over 10 countries that's visiting in last years. This piece was one of our first major collaborative pieces of this scale. It was formulated during the pandemic when we in Sydney, like everybody else around the world, experienced all of the things that we did take for granted and all the things that were consistent in our lives that suddenly changed and were no longer um, reliable in, in that sense. And we were looking for a way that we could represent this global and collective feeling. We wanted to create something quite universal that could transcend cultural barriers or language barriers or even um, age differences. And I think everybody can relate to the magic of a bubble, that fleeting magical moment. And I think there's also a little bit of nostalgia of uh, when you're a kid. For a lot of the places that we're privileged enough to exhibit this, like here in the heart of London in the business district, for us it is a lot about the contrast of the bubbles. You know, we have this fragile aesthetic with very rounded, colourful shapes in contrast to the very modern buildings that are around us in almost a sea of grey. And we hope that that is something that is that serendipitous point of joy for the public when they do encounter this on their morning and evening commutes around the city. Also from the medium of inflatable, we do have a little bit of a, I wouldn't say love-hate relationship, but when we do inflatables, we try not to make it look like an inflatable. We want it to look like as an architectural piece or as a piece of art. Use it as a construction yeah, methodology construction rather methodology. than a medium itself, I think. Yeah. So it's a lot of uh, exploring how to construct and design with this medium, with these methodologies. We've been touring this for the last two years, so we have done a lot of trial and error already. We don't want it to look like an inflatable, and then we don't want to create any trip hazards of any kind. So we've uh, worked with engineers to use different types of ballast so that we can achieve that without any guy ropes. We've been able to find a good manufacturer that can deal with this kind of materiality. And they're really resilient. They've weathered the snow, the cold, the heat, <laughs> everything. Yeah. <laughs> It goes in line with the whole concept of the piece itself, fleeting moments and being an inflatable, it does allow us to put it up in a day or two days, show it to the public, they enjoy it, and then it goes somewhere else. We want to make an immersive experience for the audience, and for us to be able to achieve that through inflatables allows us to be able to tour this work and show it through different communities and different audiences all around the world. For Atelier Sisu, one of our main focuses is bringing art out of the galleries and into the streets. We want our work to function as a stepping stone between public within galleries and the decorum and the decor that's required for that into the streets and making public art very accessible for an audience. I think something inherently important that we do focus on in the conceptualization of all our works is that 
uh, it should be immediately understood. You shouldn't need to be told what the art is. And everybody might have very different interpretations of that. We've had uh, alien eggs and (laughs) psychedelic testicles, I think. So we've had plenty of creative interpretations of the work, but luckily... Uh, with this piece particularly, the most commonplace interpretation is a bubble. Yeah, no, it's been really well received. But, but yeah, it's all about making art a bit more democratic so that you don't have to purposely go to the gallery and see the art. You can encounter it serendipitous throughout your day and make it part of your everyday because that, that is how it should be. It shouldn't have to be a privilege. We're surrounded by beautiful architecture and incredible graphic design. Art should be part of the everyday the same way you eat food to nourish yourself, art nourishes us all. It lends itself to our understanding of our urban environments and the cities that we inhabit. They don't need to all be pragmatic. They do need to evolve and grow as the communities and the cities do. And the fact that in a beautiful space like this, we can have a very temporary artwork that suddenly appears overnight and disappears and is that moment of energy and a spark within the city for a very short period of time. That's what allows cities to evolve and be places of buzzing energy. That was Zara Passfield and Renzo B. Larivier of Atelier Sisu. The installation, Evanescent, is at the Leadenhall building until the 10th of February. But there are also other Evanescent installations across the globe. So check out their website to find out more. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.